Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. We got a fun one for you today. You're getting two for the price of one. We're going to start off. I'm going to do a review of the brand new film, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And then we're going to throw it across to Richard, and he is going to give us his thoughts on the film that we had all been waiting for since the 1980s, the sequel to Top Gun. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. But let's get into it. Let's put no further ado. We're just going to jump into it. Let's do the uh, spoiler free for the Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, is this a film that we should see in the theaters? Uh, should we wait for it on streaming, buy it on Blu-ray, maybe wait for it to hit reruns, something of that nature, or just miss it altogether? Um, I would say absolutely go see this in the theater if you can. Um, it is an exceptionally good movie. The The level of quality hits on all cylinders, uh, and it, the the efforts that they put into this show, plus the type of film that it is, just it, it works so much better on a larger screen. But let's uh, go into our semi-scientific breakdown where we take the film and put it through the rigors of uh, uh, a, just a oversimplification would that be the right word probably over over analysis maybe that's better but we're going to break it down we're going to talk about the cast the director the costuming and props the location the score the cinematography the plot and writing and then potentially giving bonus points for positives or negatives the total score can add up to a total of 100 points uh, no film has done that to this point, but then again, no film's gotten into like the low 20s either. So uh, we'll see what happens with this one. I mean, you already know I like this film, so you know it's not going to be a low 20s. But uh, <laughs> let, let's just get to it. Let's start with the directors. Um, now, this film is a sequel to the original Into the Spider-Verse and has three different directors that are not the original directors of the previous film. Now, that being said, as it is an animated film, what it means to be a director is just a little bit different. Um, but ultimately, we still look for the same things. Uh, did they help to constrain the story into a tight and well-delivered package? Did they make it so that it appeared that all of the actors worked together well, whether or not they were in the same room or not when they were recording? Uh, did did it seem like they conveyed the the concept of what was going on to everyone in a way that it would come through uh, when it was recorded? Um, and I think that the short answer is yes. Now, the three uh, directors that we're talking about is Joaquim Dos Santos. Uh, you may have uh, known some of his work previously. He's been involved in a lot of stuff as a producer. Uh, he produced The Legend of Korra, uh, among other things. Uh, was involved with Voltron, Legendary Defender. You've also got uh, Kemp Powers. Uh, you may know him from... Uh, if you got to watch Soul, which was really fun. He was a writer for Soul. He's done... Uh, quite a bit of writing here and there, uh, but that one was, that screenplay was a lot of fun if you haven't seen it. And then you've got Justin K. Thompson, who was actually involved with the previous Spider-Man film as a production designer. So, I mean, he's got, he had his hands into the, into the nitty gritty of that previous film anyway. So was in a pretty uh, good position to be able to know what's going. But if you saw Cloudy with a Chance Meatballs 2 were the first one, uh, 
little big planet that game, which was just a lot of fun. So I mean, uh, he's he's got uh, some some good production um, experience and a lot of animation experience. Uh, so between the three of them, I think that they did a good job of keeping everything tight. You already, as a as a director, normally is going to have have so many different things that are going on in a production. I can only imagine that it is ultimately more complicated when it's being animated instead of recorded. Everything just has so much more to it. The time scale seems like it would take a lot longer. But but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get lost in the weeds here. I'm gonna say out of a fifteen not knowing them for anything else and not knowing exactly how much of an impact they had. They had to have had a pretty strong impact on this. I'm going to give them a 13 out of 15. Pretty strong uh, first outing for some uh, and uh, semi-first outing for others. Uh, so let's jump into something that's that we're going to be able to really comment a little more on, and that's the casting. Now this casting, the previous film already had an amazing cast and a lot of the voice actors from the previous film continued on to the current film. Uh, Shameik Moore still doing Miles Morales, Haley Steinfeld, uh, Steinfeld I should say, uh, still doing Gwen Stacy, still have uh, Brian Tyree Henry and Luna uh, Lauren Velez. I mean, just a lot of the people that were really liked that were already involved from previous film, reprising the roles and just doing a fantastic job. Uh, they did a, such a good, good work in finding the right people to be able to bring these characters to life. Um, now, if you're not familiar with, Sh um, if you're not familiar with Shamik Moore, uh, he's obviously done things other than this, but I would say this is probably his biggest thing that he's done. Um, and if this is what you're going to be known for, I'd say yeah, <laughs> that's a good thing to be known for. But if you've watched Wu-Tang and American Saga, he's in, he's in that, um, quite a bit. Uh, so I mean, it's, he's, he's good at what he does. And of course, Haley Steinfeld has been in a bunch of stuff. Now, my favorite thing that she was in other than this is probably Hawkeye, which I really enjoyed that, uh, show, but she's been in a bunch of, a uh, bunch of other stuff too. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry, as soon as you see this guy, you immediately will recognize him, I think. He's been in a bunch of things. He was in, recently, uh, the film Bullet Train, which was so good. And he had such a good part in that film, too. Um, one thing that I've noticed, I mean, you can't see it in this because it's all animated, but he has such great facial expressions in, in the live-action films that he does. But, um, uh, ultimately, um... His voice is just just really really good, so it's a, a great casting for that. Um, you would know Luna from her time on Dexter. Um, uh, she she was in most of that show, um, and then of course Jake Johnson being Peter B. Parker. The the uh, obviously spoilers at this point uh, <laughs> uh, is that, well, but if you saw the commercials, you already knew he had a kid. Uh, the character had a kid coming into this, but he was in. Uh, new girl, if you weren't uh, familiar with him. So I mean, um, these these people all came back and reprised their roles. They brought in Oscar Isaac, who I absolutely adore. Anything that he touches, and he's been in so much comic uh, related stuff, and he's always good. Even even in the the abysmal X Men film where he played Apocalypse, he was good, even if the film itself was not. Um, so, I mean, 
I've I've yet to find something that he's he's touched recently, at least, that I have not really enjoyed his performance in. And um, I just I really like I like his take on Miguel because you have to have a certain how do you how do you voice detachment uh, and hidden pain? I mean that that's that's kind of rough. <laughs> it's I think he does a good job with that. Um, now, when I was watching the film, I tried to go into this blind and not, and not uh, knowing exactly who was who. So, I mean, some things came through obvious uh, when they're in the school. Rachel Dratch's voice is unmistakable. As soon as you hear her, she's hilarious in anything that she does, and she doesn't have a lot of, a lot of time with this character. But just the fact that she's involved with it is fantastic. Uh, but um, the sort of main villain not exactly the spot it's like oh i i know that voice and i was kicking myself afterwards for not recognizing it of course jason jason schwartzman i mean if you've seen uh rushmore uh you immediately know who that is um but i mean he's been in so much good stuff and this isn't even his first foray into um into a comic book movie because he was Gideon Graves and Scott Pilgrim versus the world. He did great in that. I mean, he just, he's got a very, a very recognizable voice and had sarcasm and comedy just come through really well in, in the way he does things. So that's a great casting. Uh, Issa Rae bringing her in as one of the spider people. Um, she didn't have as much, uh, time on screen, but the time that she had, she sounded great at, Things did really well. Being able to bring in Daniel Kaluuya, um, uh, that was <laughs> kind of kind of awesome. Also, I didn't recognize him at first either, just because of the character he's playing has so much, you know, slang. Um, but he was he was doing Hobie Brown, the Spider Punk, so a lot of uh, British slang, and I didn't didn't catch it at first. But uh, uh, Karen Sony as uh, uh, as the Indian Spider-Man, I mean, that that was so cool. Again, another instance where I guess like, I know this guy. Where do I know this guy from? Oh, yeah, Deadpool. How could I forget Dopinder and Deadpool? And he's been a bunch of other stuff, too, but that's one of my favorite uh, things that he's been involved with. Uh, you should probably take a look at Miracle Workers. That's getting some pretty good reviews from what I've seen uh, from people that I that I trust that he's involved with, and that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I'm going to miss people all over the place here, but uh, Marshal Ali's back uh, reprising his role, bringing in Andy Samberg. Anytime you bring in Andy Samberg, that's just fantastic. And it's another instance where it's like, oh, I know that one. Uh, but having him be like the, the very 90s interpretation of the characters, it's, it's so good. This is essentially as close to a perfect casting as you can get. And you got Jack Quaid, you've got Ziggy Marley, you got a smattering of J.K. Simmons in the background. You actually have Donald Glover in the film. Um, so, I mean, and the only real, well, not the only real uh, footage, but you know, just the, the only real footage where somebody's acting for this film specifically. So, I mean, yeah, nearly perfect, nearly perfect. Um, I, I'd have to give this 19 out of 20 on casting. Like I said, nearly perfect. 
Um, let's go to costuming and props. Uh, costuming and props, obviously, with an animated film is a little different. So it's more about the design of the costumes and the items that they use. The watches that they have are pretty neat. Uh, if you're going to have a technological device that's going to be on somebody that's flipping around regularly, a watch makes the most sense. And their design on it and the one created at the end was really kind of neat. Um, the updates to the costumes I thought were good, making fun of uh, um, Miles's new costume, saying it bleeding from the armpits. I thought that was pretty funny, but I actually really like that. Um, the the design on the vulture character uh, at the beginning was just gorgeous. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. And uh, we'll talk about the stylistic things when we get to cinematography, but just the the design of the character, the linear patterns that were involved with it, uh, and making it feel like it was from the Renaissance was just so. So brilliant! Uh, it was it was so well designed. Uh, the the spider dinosaur costuming still makes me giggle. Um, there's just so much. There's so much to all of these characters, and pretty much the, the the characters that came back still still essentially look the same. But you know you've got to bring in enough differentiation between the different spider people so you can kind of really pick them out but also kind of in a in most instances a very very brief window of time kind of get an idea of who they are and why they are different when you've got seconds just seconds to look at the costume and they were able to get so many of those involved uh between the um between the the cowboy uh, Spider-Man and uh, the the essentially Deathlock-looking Spider-Man to the I just Miguel O'Hare's costume is as close to the comics as I think you can get. It 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 it's accurate, but it's also just wicked cool. Um, there's not a lot of um, not a lot of items that are really important, uh, you know, like web slingers, you know, think, something like that. But there's no, no item that they're all chasing after. Basically, the watch is pretty much it. But uh, you know, if you want to go with the prowler outfit, you, that prowler design is pretty awesome. Having to put another spin on Miles at the end of the film, um, that those design changes were just really nice. Uh, not just obviously him wearing the Prowler outfit, but also um, just the, the difference in, in hairstyle and general uh, attitude and the type of clothes that he wears underneath the costume, having to try and get that different feel for uh, uh, somebody has gone through different uh, life experiences. They did so well on all of that. Um, it was bright. Um, it was it was easy to keep up with, yeah. And then not just that, but even the the bystanders, the people that were around, all of the clothing was just very fun, and it was bright and it popped when you're on the the roof for the roof party. Um, all the people that were in attendance, they just they looked fantastic. Uh, the the designs for their for their just normal clothes were just fun. Um, yeah, uh, costuming in this, perfect. 10 out of 10. 
I have no complaints on the way they designed things and the way they implemented things. Um, yeah, there's nothing more to say about that. Uh, similarly, going to locations, uh, this can also be a 10 out of 10 uh, potential. Um, wow. The number of places that they go to is just substantial. I mean, obviously, we're going to be in the, the, the world of Miles Morales, but you get to see not only that and have it be just fun and the part that you're expecting and the way a school feels and everything is still really nice, but being able to go to the 2099 universe and get the feel of that and how everything looks uh, from the inside uh, of uh, the spider base and everything to the to the traffic patterns and the look of the city on the outside. There's a lot of variation. You get to go into a bunch of different realities. A spot is warping around. Uh, get the little bit with the Legos was just genius. Um, so much fun. But the way that it was presented, they each were unique. They each were identifiable. They were each fun, a new pop each time you went to it. Um, and it, and it helped it feel, helped it feel like you were moving, that this was a story that was about a journey. Because a lot of times you watch a film, you're only in a couple of different places. You're not staying still anywhere in this film. There are so many locations that you go to, whether it's traveling through the city when you're in the convenience store, whether you're in the, the Venom universe very briefly. I guess that's true. You did get live action from the Venom uh, universe with the, the teller that's in the, the Mart. I forgot about that. So Donald Glover wasn't the only one. But um, being able to just kind of jump from point A to point B. And even in the universes you go to, you don't stay anywhere very long. They're constantly moving. That is hard. That is really hard. Not just in animation, but in being able to maintain the story and have it feel like you're not getting just dragged along and not able to keep up. But I never felt like it was going at too fast of a pace. It was it was just the right clip to keep the story moving and all all of everything was rendered incredibly well and there is so much variation. Um yeah, that again, location 10 out of 10. Easy. Um the score. Now one of the big things from the previous Spider-Man film is they wanted to have a more current um I don't want to say hipper, but a, a different, a different look at at music from kind of where Miles would be coming from. So going to, you know, going to like a, a Guardians of the Galaxy greatest hits from the seventies, eighties, and nineties doesn't make any sense. Uh, you got to have some some of the uh, some R and B, some hip hop. Uh, you got to have a lot of other types of music uh, that are referenced that are just that are newer, I guess, is the, the only way to put it. Um, and not just new, but still good and still liked. Um, they were able to do it again. I mean, they have a lot of talent doing the, the music, and the music features prominently in this. I mean, there is some kind of standard um, um Standard uh, standard music from like a, an orchestral side of things, but most of the music that you're really going to notice is going to be normal songs. And you got Lil Wayne in there, you got ASAP Rocky, you got Future, you got 
Um, uh, Boogie with the hoodie. I love that name, by the way. That's just too much fun. Um, but you know, it just it's two chains, twenty one savage. I mean, they they have a lot of really fun, um, somewhat poppy, but definitely, um, definitely in the realm of R and B and hip hop, and a lot of great tracks. A little bit of techno, a little bit of house music. I don't know if you really can call it house music anymore, but I mean, they're kind of all over the place because it's trying to create this this youthful feel. And for the most part, they're very successful. The, the music that's chosen makes sense, even if I don't like all of the songs, uh, which truthfully, for the most part, I like all of the songs. Um, but the only issue I ran into with the music, um, the mixing, uh, was a little overpowering at times. It, it, you want the music to be very, very much part of the scene, but you don't want it to dominate it. Um, and I think they had some, they had some, uh, mixing issues. In fact, I think I saw uh, a news story to that effect that they have adjusted it since. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm almost tempted to go back and watch it again with the new mix and see, see what the difference is. But, uh, even with that, even with the being a little, little heavy handed, man, it's, it's just really solid. I'll give that nine out of 10 easy. Um, Cinematography. Oh my word. This is one area that just like the previous film that this film shines. Um, it's all animated. So, oh, well, mostly animated, 99% animated. Um, and they, they do a stellar job, not just of showing off, uh, artistic quality in terms of precision and just the look and the design but a variety of different styles. The beginning, when we uh, look into Gwen Stacy's background, that that style is different than the Miles Morales Earth. Every Earth has its own impact, its own stylistic choices that that affect everything, whether it's shading or inking or color or whether it's supposed to look like it's very pastel in that very beginning. It's supposed to look pastel. It is gorgeous. This whole film is just absolutely gorgeous. When you go see this, if you haven't seen it already, which there's no way you're listening to this at this point if you haven't seen it already, but think in your mind when you're watching this film, did you take a moment at points in the film to just zoom in on sections of the character's bodies and see where crosshatching might be or see where the shading is or see where... Uh, the dots that you would normally see on a comic book page might appear as a stylistic choice, or to see uh, when there's movement, to see how those how those lines interact with each other, and the lighting looks, uh, or not lighting, but the uh, the the color choices look uh, to to replicate lighting and the way things are going. It is it is art. It is one hundred percent art and. I looked for problems. I looked for any stylistic choices which didn't make sense or inconsistencies. When you're on one world and you're doing it this style, did they keep the style when they go back or did they change? Or if they changed, were they supposed to change? I looked for that. Was the combat 
sections where the, the fights were happening, were you able to follow things? These are a bunch of spider people that move around fast. Uh, one of the villains has spots that cause you know things to move around in weird ways. Was it too hard to follow? Um, were the facial features not only good enough to to feel like it draw, drew you in to be good enough to think, oh, that's kind of that's definitely a person. But not only that, but convey the emotions that you needed to see that matched the voice acting. I couldn't find anything. I now admittedly, I've only watched it once. But I was looking um, because I didn't want to just come out and say, yeah, it's the best thing ever. And it, I couldn't find mistakes. I didn't find any um, in terms of just sheer artistic quality. Um, the the choices in establishing shots, uh, oh, the upside down when they're sitting next to each other with uh, uh, Spider-Gwen and uh, – um, Miles sitting upside down, just looking at the city at one point. Again, just gorgeous. Um, every single bit of this just has so much style. It just oozes quality. Um, 15 out of 15 on this. I Again, I, I don't think I've seen an animated film series do better than this. Uh, or it's, it's just that, that good. Um, let's wrap it up. We're going to go into plot and writing It's our final category where you can get up to 20 points and it's generally where things will make or break the, the film. Now, um, I will tell you this, you've already heard me raving about this. Um, uh, the, the writing's good too. I mean, it's not perfect. No, no, I've never seen a perfectly written film, but the characterization is good. There's not only character development, there's character growth. You get to see interactions in ways that you might not expect. Um, the villains are not flat. The villains aren't necessarily who you expect. Um, the ways that each of the people interact feels genuine. I mean, one of the hardest things in a lot of films is that familial side, being able to have that dialogue between siblings or between mom and dad or, or mom and dad to the kids, it often feels forced or fake. And there's maybe one or two bits that are staged, but it's not so much that they feel fake, but it's, you know, tropes that have been used before. The mom that doesn't get it and tries to talk to the kid, uh, you know, things like that. But that's only a trope because it kind of happens in real life. Um, maybe not in quite such a way, but... Um, there's a bit of retconning that happens that's maybe not perfect um, in establishing how uh, the the spider uh, got to Miles Morales in the first place. Um, and I'm not 100% certain that it's completely consistent in how they portray everything, but I can't really say that because it seems like it also might be a reveal that will be in the sequel. So... I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on this one. And if, if the benefit is not given, then well, I'll just, <laughs> that will come out of the plot and writing of the sequel. Uh, but Miles's character was compelling. Gwen's character was compelling. Um, they were all compelling. Um, 
the the way that they established the Spider Verse, explained things, was really good. the The way that they portrayed the the commonalities between all of the characters, things that bound them together, the things that were similar, um, was just gorgeous. Uh, being able to weave bits from the original. Uh, Toby Maguire Spider-Man trilogy, the the Andrew Garfield trilogy, the stuff from the MCU. Um, it just was very nicely and tightly woven. Um, I've heard some people complain uh, about the characterization, um, uh, the characterization of Miguel O'Hare in this, and saying that was, well, I don't think that fits his character from the comics. I would disagree. I read that entire 2099 series uh, when it came out, and this is 100% how he would act because he's not Peter. He's, he's, his character is in an environment that is drastically different than any of the other Spider-Men and a lot darker, and it's a lot harder to have that strong moral compass, especially with the way that he got his powers, and he doesn't maintain that perfect moral compass all of the time. Um, and I think his emotional reaction and the way that he, he uh, uh, goes after things is 100% how that character is supposed to behave. Um, being able to take a, a character like Spot, who's often been overlooked, and turn him into something that's not just compelling but relatable. I mean... Uh, a villain that that you can go okay I, I get it I mean obviously he he still sucks but I kind of at the same time also like him uh, <laughs> it's kind of one of those things so much fun um, and a lot of people don't like a cliffhanger ending but no in this instance I think it kind of works um, it definitely, I mean, I already wanted to see the sequel, and if I didn't want to see it before, I definitely want to see it now uh, because they have left a very nice, delicious tidbit of what to expect in the next film from what we get to see at the end of this film. I mean, was it a surprise from anybody that's watched any films or has any history? No, no. I knew exactly where they were going fairly early. I think most people did. Um but it didn't matter. And that's the beauty. The quality with which they laid down the story, it didn't need to be surprising. It was just, it was just, it's like listening to your favorite fairy tale. I mean, because that's kind of what comic books are. They're modern day fairy tales mixed with a bunch of other stuff. When you hear a fairy tale that you've already heard before, at least for me, it doesn't detract from the enjoyment of hearing it again or seeing it again. I don't mind seeing multiple interpretations of Frankenstein. I mean, there's going to be a, a, a new film coming out that's going to be another take on that. I don't mind seeing new interpretations of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves uh, or Red Riding Hood or whatever. Uh, any, of the, any of these old fables and stories that we get because they are our our foundational stories part of our culture part of what is is our literary heritage and they're fun 
And it's fun to see the little twists that people put on it and the way that they change the story up a little bit. Try and contemporize it. Try and look into an element of the characters that you don't see before. And that's what we're getting here. We're getting uh, an interpretation of these comics characters, some of which have been out for a long time. Some of them, not quite so much. And is is the story a new story? No. Uh, are the twists surprising? Doesn't matter. They're just laid down so wonderfully. Um, I I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to give it an 18 out of 20. Um, that brings my score. I don't have any bonus points. I nothing special to plus or minus. But I bring my score out to a 94. That's a solid A for this film and ties, at least at the moment, uh, ties my highest rated film that I've had uh, that we've done since we've been doing this podcast. Um, it's, yeah, this is just phenomenally good. Um, of course, we want to know what you think about it. But before we talk about that, I want to give you another chance to listen to a fantastic review by my co-host, Richard Geiger, as he talks about the newest installment. Welcome, putting people to part two of this week's movie review extravaganza. In the first part, you heard Ken chat about the new Spider-Man animated adventure. Now, I would love to see that movie. It's just that I don't always have time to be able to watch all of these movies coming out. And with this upcoming Father's Day weekend, the movie that I'm going to choose to watch is the new Flash movie. So, because I didn't get a chance to review that movie, the Spider-Man movie, with Ken, I get to do a movie review all by myself. Now, this movie that I am reviewing is currently out on streaming platforms, plural. Uh, It can be watched on Paramount Plus if you're lucky enough to have that, you Star Trek fans out there. You can also watch this on Amazon Prime. I am reviewing, of course, the hit movie, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, Now, in this review, I'm going to keep it simple, keep it secret, keep it safe. Just because this movie's been out for a little while and it grossed well over a billion dollars in the box office uh, across the world. So I'm assuming a lot of people watch this um, a movie with great fanfare. It brought all the people back to the theater, the, the story, the action, the actors. What a great ensemble. All these reviews. What a great movie. Uh, so what I'm going to go over today is was it really that great of a movie uh, yeah. uh, maybe not um, anyway let's just go with our typical format usually we give a spoiler spoiler free review go into some numbers right we do the review we have categories they're broken down by scores you get a final score at the end And that's the overall, we kind of rate it from zero to 100 and we can kind of associate uh, the scores with passing grades that you would get in school, right? C's, D's, B's, all that fun stuff. Um, C's are degrees. So 
the first thing, real simple, spoiler-free review. This movie is awful. The end. Okay, let's go into the actual review that gives individual score lines for key points. So I, I guess it depends on what we normally do, how we rate them, how we go down the line. And a lot of times in our formats that we do our reviews together, we'll start at the cast, we'll work through some things, we'll do the plot at the end. And I kind of like to stick to that format. So I'll go ahead, I'll take the easy route, and I will go with the cast. Now, if we look at this cast as an overall, as an overall group, it's pretty decent. I, I there, there were some that I honestly, I, I wasn't exactly excited about. But the cool thing about this movie as the, as the follow-up to its original hit way back in the day is that a lot of the key uh, things are referenced. So therefore, a lot of the key uh, people in those movies are referenced. And of course, some of them show up in this one too. The, the obvious choice on that one being Tom Cruise showing up to reprise his role as Maverick. Um, he's always got a certain bit of enthusiasm. And if you look at Tom Cruise and his roles over the years, um, honestly, he does a pretty solid job with most of the things that he does. Uh, if there's an action bit, he's the one that's going to be in the forefront doing that. You know, see all the Mission Impossible movies. And I know in this particular movie, he did a lot of the piloting, a lot of the flying of the of the jets and whatnot. So the, the motorcycle. So that part's cool. Um, I don't really have any complaints with him in an acting role in this movie. He was fine. He brought the he brought the the big action star uh, vibes. He, he did well. I didn't really have an issue with him. Uh, Jennifer Connelly shows up as like a past love interest running a bar, just happens to be in in the area when Tom Cruise is going back to the bar to, you know, at the Top Gun school. And look, there she is. Jennifer Connelly is awesome um, in this movie. She's OK. She's fine. Uh, nothing great. Uh, then you'll see, you know, I, as I just kind of run down a lot of the, the, the faces that you'd recognize in here and no, in no particular order. Uh, let's go with Miles Teller. So Miles Teller has been in a handful of different things, right? Like a lot of action stuff. Um, we've kind of seen him grow up through the action and other movies. And in this in this movie, he got you know pretty ripped, all shiny and greasy out on the volleyball uh, court with his sunnies on. He got the mustache, looking real dapper. Um, he was fine too, you know, it wasn't great, but for what he was given and what he had to do and the, I don't know, the pseudo, I, I don't know if he, the confidence, but like the, I go against the grain yet I hate you and I'm a team player, but I'm better, but I'm not. I, anyway, he did okay in that stuff. So I, I can't complain a whole lot, but it wasn't like this was some memorable, um, piece of film expertise here. Val Kilmer reprised his role as Iceman, but he's way high up in the rankings. Uh, obviously, he has his own, you know, health concerns. And for him to just be in this movie, uh, I think is a 
a testament to him, you know, putting the effort forth to, to what he's kind of been through health wise in in the last few years. So he didn't make a, a, a lot of a lot of screen time, let's call it in this movie. His picture sure did. Um, but he was in it, you know, it was kind of a surprise for him to show up. And then, of course, spoil, well, spoilers, we, we always talk about like, they killed him off. Well, he didn't. He died anyway. But his role was important to have there, but nothing too amazing. Uh, now, the one that really kind of bugged me, probably the worst face that I saw in this entire movie was John Hamm. His his Admiral Bow cyclone or whatever character was just it was supposed to be gruff and over the top but his over the top was just cheesy and way too over the top very distracting not very good and i like john ham he does uh excellent in a lot of comedy roles like that's where he should kind of lean towards now but his his role in this was just really distracting every time he was on the screen it just wasn't very good uh now the surprise was Monica Barbaro or Barbaro. Uh, she's been in a handful of things before this one. Uh, you might not recognize her too much. Um, just a couple of on-screen appearances here and there. But I thought she did pretty good in this role. And she was one of the supporting pilots, right? We'll get more into why all the pilots were there. It's kind of a plot piece. Um, then there were a couple of pilots that just had the, I don't know, I, I'm here and I'm good at what I do and I'm here and I'm rough and tough and I'm here and I'm a jerk face. And, uh, you had Glenn Powell playing one of those roles and, um, I don't know. It, it, it could just be how the role was actually written. Maybe that was it, but, um, his role, his character was kind of annoying anyway. So it, the cast itself was okay, right? But it could have been worse for sure, but it could have been better. So I'm going to give the cast an, an overall score of 13 points. Okay, next one. Let's roll on to the director 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 so the director of this one i know tom cruise had his hands in a lot of the stuff he always does that's part of him just you know being kind of a complete hollywood star let's call it uh but the actual listed director in here is joseph kaczynski um what has joseph kaczynski done well, he's done a few things. Um, probably most notably, he's done the Tron Legacy movie. He uh, already has worked with Tom Cruise previously in the Oblivion movie. And no, that's not Elder Scrolls. It's a sci-fi movie um, with Morgan Freeman, actually. Not too bad of a movie. Um, definitely uh, better than this one, let's say. Uh, I'd rather watch that one than this movie again, that's for sure. But... He's done a handful of other things, uh, but some commercials, uh, a Lady Gaga project. But really, this one and the other two I mentioned are his biggest products. Now, when, you, when you've when you got to 
put yourself in the director's seat for a Tom Cruise big budget thing and you're going to reprise a movie that was a classic movie from 30 years ago, uh, do you like do you just take the reins and run with it or do you listen to Tom Cruise and, you know, he tells you what to do so you do it? Uh, I, I got to imagine it's a little bit of the latter. And what we got out of this movie is just a lot of things going on in terms of how it was written and how honestly not great it was written and material that you had to work with. And you have the big stars and you have the faces and you're competing with success from the 30 years ago. And what are you going to do with that? And you know what? The... I think he did what he could do. Are you going to pay big money to have a big budget director in here? No, um, not when you have other people with their with their hands in the creative process. So have a director that can kind of push the buttons, they can walk through, they can have the vision that they can share right with the creative team and put it on screen so that it's a decent product. It made a billion dollars. People liked it. I just didn't think it was very good. And the director um, obviously is an integral part in that. And he didn't ruin the movie. It's just that he didn't elevate the movie either. So in terms of the director's score, I'm going to give that one a solid 10. Now, a lot of these categories we are doing out of 15 points. Some we're doing out of 10 uh, we'll have a little bit out of 20, um, once again, all totaling 100. So as we go through these categories, uh, I will give you the total at the end to represent our overall score. Okay, next one, we got some smaller but very important categories, the locations. So the locations in this one are... I mean, it, when you're when you're spending a lot of time in the air flying around and doing stuff uh, with a little bit of crash landing at the end and some training at the beginning, you have desert, you have mountains, you have snowy places, um, you have um, some suburban areas, you have a beach bar next to the ocean. I, I mean, you have all the usual suspects, just nothing that's too awe-inspiring. Um, I don't know what your plan is to make it awe-inspiring in a movie like this. You have to make it understated in a certain sense because your focus is on those faces in front of you, you know, in the hot action sequences of flying through at Mach 9 and almost 10. Um, there's there's only so many places that you can do that are going to look cool or awesome. Um, Tom Cruise apparently lives, not Tom Cruise, Maverick. I'll say Tom Cruise if I want to lives in a hangar with his airplane. And um, he's just a hardworking mechanic tuning everything and making it look good. He's got 7,000 motorcycles and he just lives his life because that's what he does. Uh, so the hangar, I guess was, cool um the airfield in the was fine where they crash landed in, in pseudo wooded snowy area was fine honestly it was really unimpressive but not so awful that it was distracting um so i gotta go with just a real basic score on this one of six out of ten uh the 
props category is next. So what are we talking about props? Well, props can be anything. Um, it's We technically do costuming and props. Um, costuming in this one is flight suits, sweaty, muscled chests, and um, leather jackets. What are, you, what are you doing? Okay, whatever. But the props, the big ones are going to be the props, right? Because this is a movie about the top gun program and you're flying things and blowing up the stuff and you know being super awesome so the props in this one really revolve around i the jets they were flying couple of them were made up jets a lot of them were real jets but ones that they wouldn't be doing in any of the missions related to the storyline so I really have to knock the props because like legitimately they did a lot of flight stuff with real jets with Tom Cruise piloting these and other pilots flying around. So like that part was legit. It's just the ones that they used because how are you going to get military jets to fly around? Um, there's all types of stories about how they were able to do that in the first one. But this one, they used some some basic um, some basic jets and some cgi jets and futuristic ones that fly super fast or have super maneuverability in them it's just that they were all kind of eh, whatever the the motorcycles they have i'm gonna bust out my old motorcycle and i'm gonna put my head down and fly right next to the field with my wind blowing in my air and my hair and look awesome um the motorcycles were fine. The beach was the beach. The bar was the bar. The house was the house. Um, really, I'll go back to the hangar. The hangar was probably one of the better things in, in kind of what was stacked up in the hangar. But the hangar it itself was just a cheesy thing. That's more of a plot point. Anyway, the, the props in, in this, t to me, were very basic and very underwhelming but not enough to make it just the worst score ever. Um, the, the big fault is the actual jets, were which were supposed to be the main focus. So I got to give a five out of this one. Uh, five out of ten. Now, the next category is cinematography. And really, when it comes to cinematography, you got to focus on a couple things. Ken likes, Ken likes to look at transitions, and he likes to look at angles, and he looks, likes to look at lighting. Uh, when it comes to ac action sequences, the cuts, this to this to this are you disguising something because the people aren't good at fighting or are you uh, accenting their fighting abilities by giving the proper cuts and showing the right angles you also have to focus on the cgi i think it gets lumped in this category as well just because of what's being delivered in front of you so i can break it down by this the ultimate highlights for sure are the jets flying and primarily with Tom Cruise doing the actual piloting of a lot of the scenes. So they had cameras mounted all over the place. You have the hard cuts. You have the, the grabbing altitude. You have banking maneuvers. Uh, you had some really stupid, let's just break in the middle of the air maneuvers that were obviously fake and put together by cuts uh, those didn't look fake even though when you're watching it you're like that's totally not going to happen in real life but anyway the 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 actual 
slow-mo things that they had a little bit of, especially during the sweaty volleyball match. It's just, it's just, apparently they had to do that scene and Tom Cruise didn't like it after the fact, but they had shut down for a bit. And then when they got back together, everybody had to get back in shape so that they could redo cuts of that scene. Um, And really the scene is just annoying. Let's put it that way. Um, The, I think the action sequences in terms of them flying and the maneuvering of the jets are really ultimately what spares the cinematography in this one, because otherwise you're just looking at basic cuts and shots, basic transitions, nothing too distracting. It's just that the, it could have, okay. It could have been a lot worse if we're not for the, you know, pretty decent flight sequences the cinematography itself was just a real bleh. So we'll do a, a 10 out of that one. Uh, a 10 for that score. Uh, we've got a couple more. We have the score. Um, we're not talking about a baseball game, right? We're talking about what does the music sound like in this? And everybody, you know, has an idea from the iconic sounds that you would hear from the original Top Gun. The soundtrack was your, your, your typical your typical rock 80s, 90s type of feel to it, right? Um, it had the poppy rock stuff that that, that people really got into. Um, definitely the 80s vibe for that first one. So what are you going to do 30 plus years later? You're going to still relive some of those old songs. Um, cool, that's what made the first movie successful. So let's put them in this one. Um, let's have an understated action background because your focus is the jets and they're flying and they're breathing and the maneuvering and the sounds those are making. So you have to have background noise to kind of, um, elevate the sound as a whole, but not overshadow what's being done in front of you. Um, I I can't really fault a lot of the, the music or the sounds that were in here you're just delivering a little cheesiness because of the the nostalgia from the first movie. And if you like the music, great. You loved the music from the soundtrack from the first movie. I get it. I understand that one. It's hard to replicate that vibe, that feeling. It's just not, it's just not the same nowadays when music is so gosh darn accessible. When that movie was out, you heard them on the, on the radio. Maybe you went and you picked up the tape, the tape, but those weren't things that you could just pick up your phone and listen to 17 times in one day. Like it just wasn't a thing you could do. You had to work hard to buy your tape so that you could get the soundtrack or hear those songs every once in a while. So the pop of the songs now is a lot harder to do for sure. Um, But this one was not a bad category, just, you know, very average, let's call it. So I gave the score portion seven points this one's out of ten okay now we're down to the big one the real the real killer on this uh, or the one that's going to just save it from total annihilation and that is of course the plot um the plot where uh, okay i can break this down the plot is just real dumb Okay, the movie itself isn't great. 
the plot is the, the one of the biggest reasons why it's not great. Um, the one liners throughout the movie are real cheesy, almost cringy. They're so cheesy. It's just not good. Um, the, the fact that they talk about this movie and present it in the modern era, but they don't. So when they go, they talk about what they're going to go, a bomb attack, whatever it's in this zone, it's in a place, but they don't ever name names, countries, nationalities, whatever. Um, and then they keep re referencing, oh, you're going to fight the toughest fighter out there right now, the Gen 5 fighter. And, and that's how they described it. Uh, it's just so, so blatantly neutral that it's dumb. And they kept referencing the Gen 5 fighter. or And it was just so annoying. So the whole plot of this movie is... Um, the the bad guys have a place where they're producing uh nuclear products but it's in this it's in this thing right where the the it's hard to access but the the team needs to go in and blow it up before it becomes live and it can potentially hurt more things but to get it you have to do a star wars flight through mountains and then you have to go up a mountain and then you have to go down a mountain and hit a target the size of a trash can it's not that small uh but then you have to pull up and hit the most g's that you can possibly get because the other side is such a steep hill and then the whole time you're doing this you have to avoid missiles that are flying and you have to avoid the radar but then at the end once they're alerted the gen 5 fighters come in and they're gonna get you it's so dumb it's the dumbest thing ever um maverick has been doing test flights that's how you get introduced to his character 30 years later he's been doing test flights and he's about to get defunded because they're not showing the results well he's gonna take matters into his own hands and he's still gonna do the test flight and then of course something goes wrong and then here comes the admiral saying i don't like you and i don't want you to do anything but iceman says you need to train pilots so you're gonna go to top gun it's so dumb it's i i can't describe to you every time a plot point came up just how cringy and awful it was I, watching this movie, I had zero expectations going into it, right? I didn't want to go to watch it in the movie because it in movie theater because it didn't look great. Um, but there was a lot of hype behind it. And when a movie makes a billion dollars, somebody's got to like it for some reason or another. Um, but, th but this movie, one liner after one liner, plot point after plot point that just gets more and more absurd you know we're, he's going to do top gun training but ooh who's in top gun training who's the, the this top not top secret who's this elite squad of pilots that they got ooh well you know who's in there it's goose's son what's goose's son's name rooster Jeez, come on, man, for real. Um, but of course, he pretty much killed his dad. But, you know, then they have a falling out besides that. Because you know what? Maverick held him out of the flight school and Rooster was angry about it. I mean, come on. It's just 
cheesy, awful plot point after cheesy, awful plot point. And they, they keep referring to the Gen 5 fighter. And when they're, I'm telling you, it's like a Star Wars run. They have to go through these mountains. And then when they get to the spot, they have to hit rockets into the tiniest thing ever and pull up and evade all the bad guys. You know, it's so, I cannot describe to you when you watch this movie, how cheesy every plot point that they introduce to you is. I've, I've already said that so many times, but this is by far the weakest point. But hey, uh, they're only going to watch the movie because of the action sequences. Okay, cool. Those are mediocre at best, so watch them. Do your thing. The plot in this is an absolute killer for this for this movie. And I personally don't think that watching this movie again after you've seen it once is really anything that's desirable. I think once you've seen the action flight sequences that you've got all that you need to see from this movie at all. Um, there's no heart, there's no action, there's no feeling in this that gives you at all anywhere near the same vibes that the first movie did. Um, there's a lot of rehash but changing, there's a lot of referencing but building on, but just in the wrong direction for this movie. I, I Had I watched this movie in the theater, I would be angry that I spent the money on it, and I would tell you without a doubt, don't spend your money on this. Uh, that being said, if you have, if you have Amazon prime and you're, you're, you grew up in the top gun era and you want to see this movie, you know what? Spend your two hours and 30 minutes watching it. Totally fine. Um, I, I just think that you'll find that you won't really want to watch this movie again because it's just not worth it after that. Um, so clearly on this one, the plot point uh, is going to be the weak one. I gave eight points for the plot. So if we do the summary points for all of this, we get a grand spanking total of 59 points. Now, is this the re worst reviewed movie that I have ever reviewed? No, uh, I do believe there is a um, Rambo movie out there that's like that last blood. Um, yeah, check that one out. Real winner. Anyway, 59 points. Um, it's not very good. If you totally disagree with me, that's awesome. Um, I bet there are legitimately good reasons why you disagree with me. Uh, share it. Give us some feedback. Go to Twitter, Instagram when we post something about this episode being up and say, I just listened to the review of Top Gun and you're crazy. So I would I would love to get that type of feedback. But in the meantime, uh, check out your Paramount Plus or your Amazon Prime. If you love Star Trek, um, Paramount Plus is is the way to go. But both of these, this movie is available on both of those platforms, uh, in 4k without any ads. So, uh, it's a pretty solid way to be able to watch this movie. Uh, thanks for letting me rant about the plot for a while and we will listen for you to give us feedback and we'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.